This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. On October 23rd, don't miss the comedy before it hits theaters, starring Tim Heidecker, James Murphy, and Eric Wareheim. And starting October 30th, catch Safety Not Guaranteed, starring Aubrey Plaza and Mark Duplass. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, the streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, Ready Player One. Coming up on this week's show, Allison and I attempt to one up each other during our review of Indie Game the Movie. Here's all I want to know this week, Matt. On this podcast, who is Mario and who is Luigi? I don't care as long as I don't have to be Toad. I don't see what's so bad about Toad. He's, he's just, a Toad! He's just a mushroom trying to get by. Can you imagine trying to fit that head through doors? <laughs> Impossible. Before we get to Indie Game, the movie, The Review, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Indie Game, we were tempted to do a podcast about video game adaptations on film, but then we realized that every single video game movie is absolutely terrible. Maybe not the best course of action for a podcast that is about recommending titles you can watch at home, because there will be nothing to recommend. Although, Matt, I know you're a huge fan of Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Mother, you're alive. <laughs> Too bad you will die. 
<laughs> so instead, we're going to talk about the influence of video games on films that are not necessarily direct adaptations. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. So, Allison, what is our first pick this week? Our pick is The Loneliest Planet, which is written and directed by Julia Loktev, uh, whose last film was the similarly minimalist Day Night, Day Night. Um, this film is based on a short story by Tom Bissell, who, to tie things into our main topic, has actually written a very good collection of essays on video games called Extra Lives. This short story is actually itself based on a famous Hemingway short story you may know called The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber about a wealthy couple who are out with a professional hunter on a big game safari in Africa. In this film, it's set in the present day, and the couple, who are played by Gael Garcia Bernal and Hani Furstenberg, are backpackers in Georgia, the country that was formerly part of the USSR, not the state. And they're traveling through rough, but beautiful countryside with a local guide. And I don't want to give away too much of what happens. It's a pretty, you know, minimal, bare-bones plot, but it's really about an unexpected incident that happens along this route that really shakes up how both halves of the couple think about each other and themselves. Three weeks and you become a bear. I know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shave you when we get back. Okay. And it's really well acted and also just breathtakingly beautiful. And I think it contains a whole multitude of interesting thoughts on like male female dynamics and kind of especially in like a very contemporary world where you don't you don't think you rely on kind of traditional a traditional divide there it's very smart really well made very well acted uh, and I, I do like it a lot i'll be reviewing it a um, movie line this week so if you want to hear more from me about it please look for my review i haven't seen it yet but i've heard nothing but very good things i'm looking forward to seeing it myself so when is that going to be available it will be available on October 30th. Okay, we've got some more picks on VOD. First up is a film entitled Fat Kid Rules the World. This will be available on October 25th. It's directed by Matthew Lillard, who you may know from Scream and the live-action Scooby-Doo movies where he played <laughs> Shaggy. And I imagine when some people hear me say that he's the director of this film, that might turn them off a little bit. And I, but I have to tell you, Allison... I saw this movie at South by Southwest. It, it won the audience award there. It deserved it. It is a really fantastic movie. Uh, it stars Jacob Waisaki, who played the title character in another strong recent indie called Terry. And he plays the titular character. He's a depressed teenager. He's actually saved from a suicide attempt by another teenager named Marcus, who's a high school dropout, an aspiring musician, and he's kind of like a, you know, punk rocker kind of character he's played by matt o'leary who is also in another recent good indie movie called natural selection mm. i'm not sure if you saw either yeah, of those so they start hanging out together and it gives uh jacob waisaki's character kind of all this passion and self-worth that he never had before and i i you know it sounds kind of like a cliche coming of age story with kind of a punk rock twist but the execution is really well done. I have to say, the movie is a real crowd pleaser. It's funny. It's charming. It's very warm. Uh, and I kind of think out of all the movies we're going to discuss on this show, if there's like one movie that I want people to go watch, it might be this one. Because it, wow. it, well, it's really small. And you can see it was made with a lot of passion. It was made totally independently. It's being released totally independently. But it's a really well-made movie, and I want to give one special shout-out quickly to Billy Campbell, who I bet you know, Allison, from the AMC show The Killing, which I never watched. Oh, yes. But he was on The Killing. He plays 
the uh, title character's dad, who's like sort of a very straight-laced military type guy who doesn't relate to his son at all, but he loves him so much. You know, and it's, it's one of these great portraits where it's not the stereotypical, why won't you go to, I'm going to send you to military right, school right. kind of thing. He's like, he's an actually, he's a really sweet guy who's just also a, you know, is a military man, you know, so... It is just, just this wonderful portrait, an unusually sensitive one of like a great single dad, which you don't see that often in movies. So I really recommend this movie. I think it'll surprise you. Fat Kid Rules the World, available on VOD on October 25th. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I cannot wait to see it. Cool. All right. One more recommendation, and this one is for my fellow action movie fans out there. It is Universal Soldier colon Day of Reckoning. <laughs> it's the latest installment in the inexplicably long-running Universal Soldier series. The uh, franchise's stars Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren are both on hand in supporting roles. The new star in this entry is a gentleman by the name of Scott Adkins, who might be my favorite up-and-coming young action hero. He's kind of where, like, Jason Statham was, like, 10, 15 years ago. He's, he feels like he's just ready to break out. He's very good in this movie as this guy. He wakes up from a coma after his wife and daughter have been murdered in this very intense opening sequence, like a home invasion sequence. And so throughout the movie, he's kind of trying to figure out what happened and why. And this Universal Soldier, like the last film in the series, Universal Soldier, colon, regeneration, <laughs> was directed by uh, a gentleman by the name of John Himes. Uh, if he sounds familiar, he's actually the son of director Peter Himes. And I think he's a really talented guy. Also, a guy I feel like is is just about on the brink of a, of a big breakout. Somebody's going to give him a bigger movie, and he's going he's gonna to really kill it. And he's taken the franchise in this very gritty direction, Allison. I don't know if you remember. I'm sure. Well, I, let me rephrase that. I'm sure <laughs> you remember from multiple viewings the original Universal Soldier, as well as its direct-to-video sequels, and one terrible sequel in the late 90s, Universal Soldier, colon, The Return. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm blanking right now, but you know, it's well. It's I'm my sure when fault. you watch them all, they were very originally. They were kind of campy and silly and cheesy and over the top and sort of almost. They were more like kind of big blustery science fiction movies. And he's kind of looked at it from this almost horror perspective, where it's like the concept of these movies is like our government is taking dead soldiers and bringing them back to life as like cannon fodder that's super powerful and and brainwashed and it's sort of a frankenstein kind of thing so he's looking at it that way it's it's kind of this horror spin on this science fiction premise and so it kind of is a nice uh pick for right now when we're right around halloween time this would be kind of a good choice if you're an action fan looking for something with a little bit more of a scary edge has some very disturbing sequences that opening home invasion is very uh halloween inspired halloween meaning john carpenter's halloween it's first person it's very spooky and then you do have the action stuff with Scott Adkins just beating the crap out of guys, which I also enjoy as well. So that's Universal Soldier, colon, Day of Reckoning, and that will be available on October 25th. All right, let's go to Q Shots, which, again, this week is going to be about video games' influence on movies. And I guess before we get to the actual picks, the one general thing maybe we could talk about is the fact that we couldn't do a video game <laughs> film podcast because they really are all so terrible. No. So maybe that's a good general place to start. Why, Allison? Why are video game adaptations so universally terrible? I really don't know because there's no reason why, as source material, they should lead to any worse movies than anything else anything else like you know they're they're usually about a cool looking hero about 
saving the world or somehow, you know, solving a problem, a crime or whatever. There, There's no reason that they should be crippled the way they seem to be. I don't know what goes so wrong. Mm. I think maybe it's like a basic condescension to the idea of video games. Maybe there's a sense of what a video game movie should be like, mm-hmm. and it's bad. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like we're on the precipice of a point where there's going to be a very good one. Yeah. Because I think video games have gotten so much better. Mm. And I think they've also gotten much more interesting on a narrative level where their stories are actually involving. You know, there's games for the PlayStation 3, which is what I have at home, that I play and I get really interested in the story. Not just playing and not just winning, but you actually do enjoy some of the craft of the storytelling. Right. Which we're talking about some of the games that got adapted in the first wave of video game movies. Games like Super Mario Brothers and Mortal Kombat <laughs> Annihilation. These are not games necessarily that I look to as wonderful storytelling opportunities. They're fun, but you don't go, man, I would love to see this translated into a, a medium where I can't play as it, but I can just enjoy it on a pure narrative level. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Whereas there are games, like I've played some of the games with a friend of mine. There's this game, this great series of games called Uncharted, mm-hmm. which is sort of like an Indiana Jones style kind of uh, spelunking, adventuring, big Hollywood blockbuster type game. And I actually played one of the installments with a friend where we would just trade off levels, essentially. He would play and I would watch. I would play, he would watch. And it was totally fun. Now, it was more fun to play, but the game was so great. The voice acting was so great. The storytelling was so great that it actually was fun to watch. So I could see, like, Uncharted, while I don't think we need a video game movie version of it, I could see that being a good movie because there's there's story there. There's characters there as opposed to Mario Brothers, which is about, you know, when you think about it, it's just so (laughs) insane. Like, it's like it sounds like something someone saw on acid like plumbers and they go to this place and they're jumping on living mushrooms and they eat other mushrooms and they grow big and then they get coins and then they have to beat the lizard who shoots fire to save the princess. It's like. Okay, but Legend of Zelda could have led to a perfectly functional movie. That's and that true. is not by any means a All new right. franchise. Yeah, you know? that's I think a fair that, point. I think that actually, I, I think the video games have definitely have gotten much more sophisticated lately. But I think that they've also been there storyline-wise for the past at least five years. Okay. And I don't think that video game adaptations in the meantime have managed to catch up yet. Right. I am really interested in the way that video game logic seems to be seeping into films a bit more. Which we covered on a podcast, our old podcast, the IFC podcast. We yeah. did a whole episode kind of about this specifically. So people, I think it's still online. People could search for it and find it. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we had mentioned The Raid on an earlier version of this podcast. And The Raid certainly seems like it's shaped around Absolutely. a video Like you level up, there are different bosses. And Dread, the new version of Dread, which just came out, which has a similar structure, also very similar in terms of video game logic. And that one might even have more video game logic because Uh in that one, Judge Dread, the main character, his gun, he can like switch between different ammunitions by saying what he wants to. Uh So one second it's like a machine gun. And then he can say like explosive rounds. And then he'll shoot like bombs, (laughs) which is straight out of a video game logic, which makes no sense. It's like, how does your gun just change ammunition? (laughs) It just shifts. I don't know. It just does it. it. How does it all fit in there? Exactly. How does it fit in this one tiny little gun? But in video games, that happens happens all all the the time. time. Yeah, and I mean, I can't recommend this movie, but it is very interesting in that way, and it is a video game adaptation. Resident Evil Retribution, the the latest Resident Evil, is the closest thing I think I've seen to just, in terms of structure, recreating, like, stages... It like for it imp- good or for ill. Yes, yes it, it I would agree with you. Like them going into this secret 
you know, area that basically is set up with four different stages. Yeah, there's different uh, levels. Like you go to there's one level that's like Tokyo and, and one level suburbia. is Russia, yeah. suburbia. Right. And the characters kind of go from one to the next with no attempt to connect them because in the in the movie, it's like, well, it's this underground training training kind of facility whatever, whatever. It but it doesn't sense. matter because all you have to do is like here's the russia stage here's right. the tokyo stage and they then, don't have to connect exactly and then they would be triggered like there would be like an attack right like yeah. then the, the, the horde would come she and so, also has like an a supply of ammo that like comes out of the ground she, and she, she can and upgrade also, her like, weapons she actually i think she you see her there are shots in which Milojevic like puts things in her boot, you know, like she has a knife and she takes it and they show her like adding it to her like inside her boot. Like she's adding something to her inventory. Like that shot seemed to yeah. indicate like this is what is happening. Yeah. One other example I can think of off the top of my head is the movie End of Watch, mm. where there's a ton of even though that movie was like a found footage movie where it was supposed to be the characters were filming themselves, these two cops uh, in, on the patrol in, in Los Angeles filming themselves. There was a ton of stuff where the camera was like mounted on their guns, yeah. which made it feel like a first-person first person shooter. shooter. Yeah. And I've been very deliberately, I'm sure. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting how even though the adaptations, the good ones, the direct ones haven't happened yet, we're seeing more and more of the logic and the visual language of it is yeah, almost like infiltrating it in a kind of a subtle and almost imperceptible way. And it's becoming more and more mainstream. Well, let's get to our picks for some... Films that are influenced in some ways by the world of video games. Allison, what's your first pick? All right. My first pick is Avalon, 2001 film. This is streaming on Netflix, directed by Mamoru Oshii, who is uh, a director, an anime director. He's best known for Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in the Shell 2 uh, films. I mean, Avalon actually screened out of competition at Cannes. You know, Ghost in the Shell 2 screened at Cannes. He is very well respected. This is a really kind of interesting melange. It's a it's a Polish Japanese co production. Uh, the version that is streaming on Netflix is dubbed into English. It is about a a world, a kind of dystopic looking world in which there is a an illegal game that everyone plays. This immersive game called Avalon. It's kind of a, a military slash RPG game. And you play it by putting on this headset that's very inspired by La Jetée, like this kind of, and then you are immersed in this game. It's very busy out there in Class A today. Watch out for time lags. Have you heard of the Nine Sisters? No, Ash. Leave it be. You are giving advice? If so, it's not for your sake, merely for the sake of the game, Avalon. You have a gift. Players of your caliber bring stability to the whole network. If you were to be lost, the game would suffer. There are forces at work. Forces you don't understand. Stay focused on the game. So there's a real interesting mix of, as she's playing the the whole film is like the visuals of the game are very distinctive uh and particularly in the terms of like how people die within the game or how explosions happen within the game and maybe most interestingly that when there are a lot of people playing the game there's lag so there's one sequence in which things are messed up because lag causes like missiles to suddenly go from being far away to like very close so i think that it's uh it's a really beautiful film it's very slow moving um and it's slightly awkward sometimes, I think, in terms of how it's structured, but it uh, has some incredible visuals and has some really 
I think it handles its kind of revelation about the game and about the world that it takes place in really well. That's a, it's definitely worth a look. Um, that is Avalon. It's available for streaming on Netflix. Okay. My first pick is from a pair of directors who I think of as sort of the best video game filmmakers right now, even though they haven't done any straight video game adaptations. And that's Neville Dean and Taylor. And I've mentioned the, uh, their most overtly video game-ish movie before on the podcast, Gamer. So I won't uh, discuss that one. But I actually like one of their other movies better. And I think that that, even though it's not as, again, overtly video game related, it definitely shows some of that influence that we've been talking about. And that is Crank, the 2006 film. And it's about a hitman named Chev Chelios, played by Jason Statham, who wakes up in a uh, sort of this stupor, this fog, only to discover that he's been poisoned. And the only way he can survive long enough to get some sort of antidote is to keep his heart pumping on adrenaline by behaving in various irresponsible ways. You know, he can he steals things, he beats up people, he drives too fast, he has sex with his girlfriend in public, he does drugs. I think he takes a pair of defibrillator paddles to the chest at one point. Juice me. Juice. Do it. Alright, come on! Okay, okay. Oh, I'm gonna go to okay. Uh, okay, I need both of them to give it to me. One, two, clear. Uh, Neville Dean and Taylor have this wonderful frenetic visual style, and the movie is just a great action movie and kind of a grungy sort of neo-noir as well. But then it does have all this interesting metaphorical stuff in there. Some of it, you could read it as a movie about action movies, and I think you could also read it as a movie about video games. You know, this quest for adrenaline, constant jolts of adrenaline is sort of like a video game character trying to find more energy. Uh, a comparison that was made even more direct in the sequel, Crank High Voltage, where he's literally looking for energy, electricity to fuel his new artificial heart after he's gotten like a one-up, essentially, a, a new <laughs> life. Uh, so, you know, in, in general, you have this character who's constantly on search for, you know, adrenaline. How do I get a rush? Which is sort of like playing a video game and wandering around and going, well, what could I do next? That would be cool. I'll, I'll beat up this random guy. Oh, I'll steal this car and drive really fast. So... It, it works on that level, and I think these guys, I think they're just really smart filmmakers. Even though they make kind of dumb-looking movies, I think there's sort of a brain hidden somewhere deep beneath the superficial dumbness. So I recommend Crank. I recommend the sequel. I recommend just about everything that they've directed. Some of the movies they've they've written, like Jonah Hex, <laughs> I would not recommend. But definitely if you haven't seen Crank... Take a look. It is a very interesting film. It's available on uh, Amazon Instant Video for rental. Okay. My next pick is Existence, the 1999 film from David Cronenberg. It's available for rental on Vudu. And this is definitely one of the David Cronenberg films that maybe stuck with me the most that I keep going back to. Um, it offers a really interesting kind of nightmare of gaming. Uh, it stars Jennifer Jason Lee and Jude Law. She plays a character who is like the most successful game designer 
in this world in which game consoles have become this organic kind of pods, they're called, and there's very disturbing looking semi-living blob that you connect up to yourself via an umbilical cord into a port that's in the back of your spine. <laughs> so there's all kinds of disturbing imagery already. It's a it's, David Cronenberg movie. It is a David, it's a very David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> uh, where you like connect, you immerse yourself in this game by like, you know, literally connecting it into your spinal cord. We've played your game now, so we can finally agree with the others that you are indeed the world's greatest game artist. We weren't sure before. Oh, thanks so much. New Guinea, don't you think you should have to suffer for all the harm you've done and intend to do to the human race? <laughs> what? Yes. Don't you think the world's greatest game artist ought to be punished? For the most effective deforming of reality. I, I don't think this is very... Oh. Guys, can you come over here right now, please? There, you know, the story goes like stories within stories uh, in which when they're inside, they're playing this game. They uh, work at a factory that makes new, like, new game systems that are even smaller. Uh, and there's a real sense of whatever the reality is melting away really quickly. But, uh, I, you know, the, these kind of elements within it, like uh, this organic pistol that reoccurs that's um, made of biological material, uh, or the fact that uh, the main characters are kind of themselves within the game, but are also following game impulses, uh, is a really interesting way to look at why at how characters in games behave because suddenly it's them going with these impulses to be really rude to someone. Or I think in one of the, the funnier sequences, shoot someone and kill them. And everyone in the restaurant kind of looks and uh, Jude Law says, you know, oh, was a, we were disagreeing about the bill. And then everyone goes back to eating as they would, you know, in a video game where you can get away with killing people on the street and still go up to the, a hot dog vendor, you know, and buy a hot dog. It just is, I, I think, very memorable in terms of its suggestions about what it means to be connected to this alternate world and really immersing yourself. So that's Existence. It's uh, available for rental on Vudu. Okay, my next pick is from 2010. It is Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It's available on iTunes. This is a movie that I like a lot, but I don't love but I want to love it. And uh, <laughs> maybe the movie that I most want to love and don't in the entire universe. It has an incredible amount of style. It's super clever, but it doesn't quite add up to a whole lot. If we're going to date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. You have seven evil ex-boyfriends? Seven evil exes, yes. And I have to fight defeat. Defeat your seven evil exes if we're going to continue to date? Pretty much. So what you're saying right now is we are dating uh i guess does that mean we can make out sure cool you know i rewatched this movie this week to get ready for this podcast and i found rewatching it that like the first 35 minutes or so are just fantastic perfect love every moment but then the first time the evil exes show up and they actually start fighting, and you really get to the moment when the video game logic really becomes important. Mm -hmm. That's where it starts to lose me. And and even though I kind of enjoy the rest of the movie, and even though I'm recommending people watch it on on our podcast, if you haven't seen it, because it is a visual spectacle, it's a lot of fun, it has a, some great jokes, and it's just in general has this insane energy. 
it's like the video game stuff. I don't know that it really works. We talked earlier about, you know, kind of the uh, lack of narratives in some video games. The other critique that you often hear people make is that there's no weight to anything that's going on. There's no stakes because you've always got another life in a video game, you know, that the whole thing is based around action and not rooted in character. And here I do give Edgar Wright a lot of credit for trying to do something with that, where the fights are essentially a form of character development because it's this metaphor of, you know, fighting your girlfriend's evil exes is like coping with the past. But the movie has so many fights and characters and jokes, it's so overstuffed that it doesn't have time to really deal with that metaphor on anything more than a superficial level. So I think that's what frustrates me me about it. It does feel in, in some ways like... A movie from the future, it does have a sense of it's doing something that other people haven't done before. It's really creative. It's inventive. I give it a lot of credit for it. But I find the second half of the movie really frustrating. What about you, Allison? Yeah, I remember being feeling that sense of disappointment after seeing it for the first time of just being like, there's so much here that I like. Why does it not come together as a coherent whole. It's almost a movie you're more frustrated by because you like it, because it's it could yeah. almost be, you know, a masterpiece, but it doesn't quite make it there. Yeah, and I was really frustrated with, I think, that same problem of, like, Michael Sarah's character who's built up very well in the beginning and then the film doesn't really bring his character's arc through because it There's goes no into right it goes into all this fighting and it should you're right it should be a metaphor for his character growth and for but it's not but it's not and so then it becomes very difficult to kind of to deal like having it be oh this ending is earned because you feel like it may be literally earned as in the fights happened but (laughs) not actually earned in terms of what happened with the characters right but i still do think it's a really interesting movie it is worth watching just not a complete success so that's scott pilgrim versus the world it's available on itunes all right, my last pick, I wanted to do something different. So I went with an episode of a television show. Ooh. Yes, it is a community digital estate planning uh, 2012 episode that is currently streaming on Hulu, directed by Adam Davidson and written by Matt Warburton. Uh, Matt, do you watch Community? I have watched some of it, and I like parts of it. I haven't really gotten very deeply into it. Yeah, it's a. it was a show that started out very... St- as a very pretty standard uh, Mm -hmm. group of wacky people being forced to hang out and then became so much weirder as it went along. There are episodes like uh, one set at a housewarming party in which there are different timelines based on the role of a die and who has chosen, was chosen to go meet the pizza delivery man and becomes this intricate alternate timeline story. There's a law and order homage that's like very per- like technically perfect in terms of look. There's an episode that looks like it's going to be a Pulp Fiction spoof, but then turns out to be an homage to My Dinner with Andre. So it does some really crazy things, but a particularly crazy thing that it did was in this digital estate planning episode in which the characters are brought by Pierce, who is Chevy Chase's character, who's supposed to be a kind of uh, the, the heir to a wet napkin fortune. Uh, whose father is tyrannical and racist and has passed away. So he's been summoned to uh, to receive his inheritance. And what turns out his father has built an 8-bit video game that he must play in order to win his inheritance. And the idea was that he had to bring friends and it would pit all of his friends against him. Uh-huh. Uh, but then almost the entirety of the of the episode becomes this perfectly animated 8-bit recreation, including all of the characters within it. And it manages to get humor out of 
the details of a, like that era of video games in a way that's pretty remarkable in terms of, I'd say the video game sort of resembles Super Mario 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're actually, it manages to find humor in characters accidentally digging themselves into the ground and then suffocating to death because the the ground closes over them or just in accidentally hurting your friends in the party or in uh, just like all of the kind of weird gameplay quirks that could happen and just the way it looks and sounds is remarkable peace love what's that i think it's a hippie peace love annie stop awing everything don't be jaded he's saying peace and then it has the whole uh of course storyline of this being a game that was designed by uh like a crazy racist billionaire so then there's this whole like the game itself looks ridiculous and then becomes also a storyline about uh dealing with the legacy of the father who never loved you and was a terrible person so it's a really incredibly nerdy very fun episode and i really in terms of like things all of all the things to kind of wring humor out of the specifics of like nes or super nes gameplay is a really uh, difficult and I think uh, amazing thing to to find humor in, and it does it does this very well. So well, in fact, that fans online are coding their own actual playable version of the game of that course is played they are. in the episode. Yeah, so that is the digital estate planning episode of Community. It is streaming on Hulu. Okay, for my last pick, I also wanted to do something a little different, and what I did was pick a documentary, because there have been quite a few interesting documentaries about video games as a sort of subculture, and we're going to review one of them as our main review later in the show, but there's also been The King of Kong, which is a fantastic documentary. There's another film in a similar sort of uh, vintage gaming mode called Chasing Ghosts, which is also pretty good. I picked one I hadn't seen before just because it gave me an excuse to watch it, basically, and I enjoyed it. It's called Special When Lit. It's available on Netflix Instant. It's from 2009, directed by Brett Sullivan. And technically, I know, Allison, this, you're going to get on me because pinball is not a video game, obviously. <laughs> uh, and in the movie itself, in Special When Lit, video games are treated almost as like the villain because – Essentially, they've destroyed the popularity of pinball, which at a time in the past was pinball. Like there's one stat in the movie where it's like between a certain number of years in the let's say in the 50s, 60s in that area, pinball outgrossed Hollywood movies. Like that's how popular (laughs) pinball was. But I mean, if you went to an arcade as a kid like I did, if you're around my age, arcades always had both they had video games and they had pinball machines and you kind of look at them the same way so i figured on a technicality you'll you'll let me get this in especially because i think this movie would be a really interesting double feature with indie game the movie indie game the movie without talking about it too much right now is about this sort of emerging subculture this subculture that's being born and special when lit is essentially about a subculture that's dying this is about a phenomenon that had its time and is essentially fading into obscurity. And the interviewees in this movie are almost entirely middle-aged men or older. You know, there's like – I think there's two guys in the movie who are interviewed that are probably under the age of 40. They're brothers and they're the sons of one of the other talking heads in the movie <laughs> who's a pinball historian. It's definitely an art. Just to know the science of it is, is nothing. You have to understand how the ball moves, but – it's also curves and things that the ball does that make you feel satisfied. A nice sound, okay? 
you send a ball to a hole and it goes thunk, locks in, stays solid, you know, doesn't bounce out, make a sound at the same time. That's art. I find pinball fascinating. I don't really know why. I like playing it. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. I've been to the Pinball Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. I, I know all the bars in my neighborhood that have pinball machines. So I guess I enjoyed that aspect of it. I do find something about it interesting. I'm not really sure I can put my finger on it. I'm not really sure the movie explains why, but it does uh, indulge in my interest, and it, it does a nice job of telling you the history of, of this game. I don't know if I was going to call it a sport of this game and uh, it's an interesting documentary there are some fascinating interview subjects and uh, it would make a very good double feature with our uh, our main review which is coming up next so that's special when lit and it is available on netflix watch instantly i sacrificed having a life it's kind of weird i don't i don't go out i don't i don't really socialize I can't really spend any money because I don't have any money right now, so I can't, like, go out. And if, I, if I were to go out on a date or something, I, I have no car to pick them up, and I have no way to, to buy meals or anything, really. Um, well, I mean, I can purchase my own meals, but, but it's just the things you sacrifice are... Um, well, the things I've sacrificed have just been social. You, you kind of have to give up something to have something great, in a way. All right, now it's time for our Listener's Choice Review, which this week is Indie Game, the movie, which premiered earlier this year at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival, where it won an editing award for World Cinema Documentary. Directed by James Swirsky and Lisanne Peugeot, the film follows the creation of two different indie games, Super Meat Boy, developed by Edmund McMullen and Tommy Rafenis, and Fez, developed by Phil Fish. And it also features extensive interviews with indie game designer Jonathan Blow, whose own indie game Braid was already available by the time of the shooting of the documentary and had already become one of the first big successes in this burgeoning field of indie game design. Now, there's a lot of places I think we could take this conversation, Allison. We could talk about the similarities or differences between the creation of indie games and the creation of indie movies. We could talk about what we think about the influence of the crowdsourcing website Kickstarter on the world of indie films and the mm-hmm. world of indie games, which was used to fund some games mentioned in the, in the movie and also used to fund the movie itself. But I think we should get to those things later and start with a more general conversation about this movie and documentaries. Allison, I don't know if we've ever discussed it on Film Spotting SVU before, but you have what I think is really one of the best simple, effective measurements of judging documentaries. And I, I use it myself all the time. I give you credit, of course. I call it Wilmore's Law <laughs> of Documentary Filmmaking. And Wilmore's Law of Documentary Filmmaking, it goes something like this. A documentary can't just be about a good story. It has to be a good movie. In other words, it's not enough for a documentary to be about something interesting to qualify as a good movie in its own right. It has to be an interesting film. So let's begin there, Allison. Does Indie Game the Movie adhere to Wilmore's Law of Documentary Filmmaking? I think it definitely does. It manages to find, I think, very, I'm sure that there are so many uh, people making indie games right now. It's clearly a field that's exploding. And I think that the filmmakers did something very smart in choosing basically these three strands of a successful indie game maker, uh, game makers who are about to to like uh, put their game out, and then one who 
is still making his game. And I think that they managed to find suspense in and also to find like a real kind of emotional complexity that really was surprising to me uh, in in these two games and in the process of getting them made. I think that that kind of cleanness of sticking with those two stories uh, is really well done. And I, I, you know, I think that I didn't expect to kind of be as involved uh, kind of like in, in the success of these games and wanting these games to be successful as I felt in the film. You know, the act of like programming a game itself is not necessarily that cinematic, especially when you show uh, Jonathan Blow, who is shown like coding a lot. It does not make, you know, it's not something where you would want to put a camera over someone's shoulder and just shoot them at work for mm-hmm. a long period of time. But I think that they managed to find not just a sense of in, like suspense in terms of the industry, in terms of like, will you get this game out? But like personal and emotional suspense. And also uh, one thing I liked a lot is the, man- the way they managed to connect the game makers to the characters and to the games that they're designing mm-hmm. in a way that I thought was, was very elegant. Well, I, here's my question for you, Matt. Had you played any of these games or heard of them? going into watching this i'd heard of a couple and i've played one that's briefly shown in the in the movie called limbo but that's it i hadn't played any of the main games yeah i have played like i think i played one of the that early flash version of super meat boy i think i played around with that i have uh fooled around with braid on someone else's setup i i don't have a console either but i was really interested in this world of of indie games that they're presenting. I I mean, not to skip ahead already to this, but what did you think in terms of, this is essentially a world in which there are like only blockbusters and now suddenly the technology is available to make indie games, like make them available in households everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like where would you see this in terms of a parallel of indie filmmaking? Well, the thing that I thought was most interesting about the parallel is the fact that these indie games can become such huge hits. And, you know, having talked to a lot of indie filmmakers, I certainly have talked to some who wanted to be huge mainstream artists and who talked about financial success a little bit. But generally, you don't get into the world of indie film to become, like, a millionaire. But I get the sense, while their games are very artistic and clearly personal expressions that are very interesting, I do also get the sense that that's not enough for these guys, that they want to be able to make the games they want, but they also want to be really financially successful. And to some degree, without spoiling too much about the movie, some of them are. You know, Some of yeah. these guys become millionaires overnight, essentially, through the making of a game. And I think that is really interesting. But that is a, that, that's sort of a divergence between the two. You don't often hear about people making an independent movie and then becoming millionaires overnight. I guess it does happen. Right. But it seems more possible, at least the way the movie presents it. I don't know if it is or not, but that's the sense I got from the film. Yeah, I mean, you are able to also put your product out there directly. Right. I mean, I'm, there are probably cuts, like all kinds of people get a cut, but it's still like you offering, right? Like the path in independent film is like someone buys your film. Right. And that's where money comes from. But there is this real interesting sense of like, you putting your game out there and then, you know, having a following, but fans all go out and buy your game. Right. You know, there's a real connect connection to the audience that's more direct. So what did you think of the characters that uh, were followed here? They are all, they're similar in that way of, um, they are kind of, they seem to be prone to a certain lifestyle. 
they're they're all pale they're very pale <laughs> yes yes pale white guys colon the movie exactly yeah um and all of, like eventually grow some kind of facial hair that's <laughs> You know, very like uh, tragic. I have not left the house for a while. Yeah. There. yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what did you think in terms of how it uh, how the film portrayed their struggles? Uh, I, 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 li- <laughs> I like how you describe them, but I, I like the characters. I think I think the movie does pass. I haven't addressed the question I asked you, but I think yes. it does pass that Will Moore's law. Uh, it is a good movie. Although I think there's one thing we could talk about that maybe is uh, something that's a strength and a weakness of it in a little bit. Mm. In terms of the characters, what I thought was kind of interesting was there's not a lot of quote-unquote conflict in the movie, except internal conflict. The characters struggling against deadlines and stress and their own, you know, uh, whatever the video game equivalent of writer's block is, to just make the game and be successful and triumph over that sort of adversity but otherwise there's no there's no villains there's no timelines per se i guess one of the stories has a has a timeline a deadline that has to be met but in terms of i mean one of the three main characters or stories his game's already come out and he's really just sort of commenting on the after effect so what the movie needs to succeed are are interviews are good interviews and they really did a great job getting a, a tremendous amount of access and also finding people who can really speak very personally about why they do what they do and you that comes across really well and the thing that they they kind of communicate is this sense of how cool what they do is but also how frustrating it can be how hard it is i walked away going man i wish i could do what they do and simultaneously going thank god i can't do what they do because i would just lose my mind you know so i think that they really do a nice job of portraying both those sides of things yeah i think uh it also really lays in how fundamentally solitary this like the act of game making can be even the people who work with other people still a lot of what you're doing is just you and your computer Mm -hmm. and just you indoors hunched over your computer right and i I think that that aspect of it the kind of that aspect of the toil is very intimidating and the fact that they make that sort of toil where it is guys in dark rooms hunched over computers dramatic and suspenseful i think that's a credit to the filmmakers here that's not easy to do the thing that i was referring to before that i would say is maybe a knock on the film we could debate it is the movie is about sort of how beautiful independent funky weird looking things are i think one of the characters at some point says like things that are personal have flaws they have vulnerabilities there's a sort of sense that like games that are flawed or weird or different that there's something beautiful about them that's why we like these indie games is the movie itself too beautiful to convey that Mm. because i thought this movie was really beautiful i'm sure was you know this is a movie that was you know financed uh in part on kickstarter i'm sure it was a very low budget movie but it looks beautiful the camera Mm. is constantly gliding around the subjects the camera is very rarely still there's a lot of beautiful cutaways beautiful close-ups to the games to the characters working in, in their environments. I watched this movie on my computer, and I thought, for a movie that I watched on my computer, I thought it looked beautiful. But my question is, does it look too beautiful? I wasn't bothered by the kind of technical sleekness of mm-hmm. it in general. I, it didn't really get to me. I mean, it, there is certainly a little bit of a disconnect between the kind of products that are being put out and the film itself. And the gloss of the, the film. The gloss of the film, yeah. That you have a film that actually looks more more professionally made than the games that it's looking at. Yes, exactly. I think exactly. so, definitely. But I don't, it, it didn't bother me so much because I think that 
it allowed you into this story in a kind of a smoother way, you know, by not, I, I mean, like the fact that like, I don't think it's distractingly beautiful. It just is very well right, made. Right. So it didn't really call my attention. If it was like particularly glossy and or like particularly like overtly stylish, mm -hmm. I think that would be distracting. But I think that even the touches it does, uh, I think that one shot of Phil Fish from the back when he's at PAX that catches like this red thing above his head that like looks, you know, it's like his Fez, character. His character, his yeah. video game character. And I thought he's... that that was like a really nice touch that there yes. are little moments, like visual moments like that, that I think it actually, it pulls off very well. I, I mean, like just the parallel of like, you know, to bring up like Super Meat Boy, this character who is like a blob of meat <laughs> in this game, and to kind of find a way to tie that in both in terms of like the visuals and thematically to one of the characters' relationships, mm -hmm. you know, I thought was like kind of really like done in a very lovely way. And I think that there are ways in which you could push that parallel and have it be incredibly clunky. Mm -hmm. But instead, I thought that it turned out very elegantly done. Yeah, it's it's a good movie, and I think it does pass the uh, Will Moore's law of documentary filmmaking. It mm. it is, it is a good movie on its own. It's not just. In fact, you could almost say the stories themselves aren't that interesting in and of themselves. It's the way in which they're presented, yeah. and the way in which the movie really makes it about the personal sacrifices and the personal artistry that these guys have and that they put into these games, where. You would never play these games the same way after you've seen this movie. You would really – I think you would understand exactly what the, the the artists, the designers, the creators were doing when they made them because they all had sort of personal agendas in every single one of their games, which is so fascinating. I, I do – I think that a point that it raised aside from that aspect that I thought was interesting was just that like when you're in a like nascent stage of this – of video games as art, right? That, right. To the point where like people are still – willing to debate as if video games can be qualified as art, right? Like Roger Ebert kind of famously saying he couldn't see a way that video games could be art. That that you have an audience that, like, there's that question of, like, what does it mean to have a kind of artistic video game that's artistic maybe beyond just be being beautifully made, but to have, like, themes in it, right. you know? It's not about f visual beauty in this case. You're talking about, like, you know, thematic. thematic. Yeah, that, like, you know, you, know, you have... Yeah, you have an audience that doesn't know how to look for them yet or, you know, how to process that. There's not really a place... Like, there's not a lot of, kind of, video game criticism in place, right? Outside of, like, reviews that are very gameplay-focused, usually. Yes. And, like, that this is a world in which, if... Like there is, there does seem to be a, like a whole realm of possibility for like kind of artistic achievement here. It's still, there's still also the audience that's maybe not primed yet for that and not really ready to know how to look for that. Possibly. Or, you know, you could also look at the fact that video games are very interactive. And when you play it there, you become in a sense an, a co-author of the game. So you begin to feel like your interpretation is 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 very valid you know what i mean like the author's interpretation is almost in some ways uh become secondary to the interpretations of the gamer who's actually creating things making choices even if all of those choices are predetermined by the options given to you by the designer you can feel like you're you're a, a bit more of a of a co-creator in the experience yeah and so i one last question related to this what did you think of phil fish's experiences with gaming fandom because i think that the film raises up 
this kind of positive side of gaming fandom in the experience of Super Meat Boy, right? That people are like so warmly receptive of this. They and that fan they films. Fan films and drawings. Art, yeah. And there's like, it's a really touching moment in which uh, one of the creators is talking about like the kind of, like his, how happy he is, right? right? But I think that like there's, you know, Phil Fish had a long delay in making Fez. His whole story is about how long it's taken. He's lost his funding. He's had a clash with his business partner that he has had incredibly negative reactions from people who just are like, where's the game? Why can't I have the game yet? I hate you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What do we want? I mean, it's it's the same with... Uh, do you think it's that much different than any other kind of internet fandom? I, I mean, I'm just... I, I think that it shows an interesting kind of, and I don't think that this is is this exclusive to gaming. I mean, I think that like um, uh, George R. R. Martin talks about having similar kind of like demands and like aggressiveness from his fans right. for his series of novels. You know that, but there is this interesting, disturbing side, kind of like entitled side to fandom sure. of being like, I was promised this thing. That I haven't paid for, that I have like no actual. I watched a ninety-second trailer yes. online for this thing. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah, it's like I hate you now because you have not given it to me. <laughs> oh yeah, there are some really excessive reactions. Well, I mean, I it, yes, that is definitely a part of the movie. It just make that kind of just makes me sad. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I know, I just, especially I in context really... of like what has happened in his life. Right, as he's explaining, it just sounds. Very def- like I can't imagine how defeating it must feel to like right. work really hard through all of these things and have people greet you with you're terrible. And if any of those people who would leave those sorts of messages have any sort of self awareness, uh, if they saw this movie, maybe they would realize you know that how how ridiculous and absurd and kind of self defeating that is. And it might give them a little more perspective on doing that. And I hope that would happen. Will it happen? I don't, I don't know. But I, I would hope so. Yeah, I think it kind of speaks to that idea of co-authorship. That in a way, loving something or like there's a sense some, sometimes in fandom that like loving something so much or like kind of wanting it so much gives you that kind of privilege as well. To you be know? a jerk. To be, or just that, like, that you have a kind of ownership over it somehow. And there's certainly a negative aspect to that that I think is, is on display here in an interesting way. All right. Well, that's Indie Game the Movie, and it is available now on Netflix Watch Instantly. All right. Let's finish up with Behind the Eight Ball, our countdown of three new releases, two expiring titles, and one random film chosen from our cues blindly. Allison, you're going first this week. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Let's go with three new releases. Okay. The first is Idlewild, 2006 film. It is streaming on Hulu. This is the period musical starring Andre 3000 and Big Boy of the hip hop group Outkast. I don't know that I would call it a great film, but it is certainly a very interesting kind of mess of a film. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of half hip hop, half uh, kind of jazz homage. It's a little bit of Moulin Rouge. Stars Terrence Howard and Paula Patton and Macy Gray and Bing Rames and Patti LaBelle in addition to the two Outkast members. Uh, it's got some great moments, at least, and got some great musical numbers. And I think it is worth checking out for just being that interesting. Uh, next is Freaks and Geeks, which is now streaming on Netflix. The great series from Judd Apatow and Paul Feig that uh, launched a thousand careers, you know, or at least James Franco, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel. Uh, we did a series on each of the episodes that you can actually find by searching for Revived and Derived IFC. You can turn up our episodes. So we did uh, our, our write-ups. We did episode by episode write-ups, and both are big fans of this show. 
And finally, Hannah and Alice, which is also streaming on Netflix. It is a film by Shunji Iwai, who is kind of a more commercial Japanese director whose films don't tend to get distribution here. He did All About Lily Shushu, uh, which was probably his biggest success here. This is a film about a pair of girls, outgoing Alice and Hana, who is shy. She develops a crush on a boy they see on the train every morning. Uh, and he's a little dreamy himself, accidentally walks into a garage door and knocks himself out. She's been spying on him and convinces him that he has amnesia from the accident and that she's been his girlfriend. He's just forgotten. And that is uh, Hannah and Alice streaming on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. All right. Uh, expiring on October 31st is Rivers and Tides. This is a 2001 documentary directed by Thomas Riedelsheimer. I think. It's about the British artist Andy Goldsworthy, who makes these ephemeral sculptures out of natural objects. It was... Uh, kind of sleeper success that played for weeks in many theaters, including the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, who ended up distributing it. And it's uh, really beautiful. Expiring November 1st is Kissing Jessica Stein. It's written by and starring Jessica Westfelt, based on an off-Broadway play that she wrote with her co-star Heather Jurgensen. Uh, Jennifer Westfelt is, of course, uh, John Hamm's longtime girlfriend, and he also appears in this film. Uh, it's about the title character who's a New York copy editor who finds herself dating a woman despite having had no real inclination towards women before. And it's a really funny, emotionally generous movie. It treats a premise that could have been kind of uh, kitschy or potentially offensive even uh, really nicely. Uh, so that's expiring November 1st, Kissing Jessica Stein. Okay, and one random film from your queue? You chose number 13, which is Liceberg, Liceberg, 2005 uh, Belgian comedy directed by Dominique Abel and Fiona Gordon. And it's uh, almost like a, a kind of silent slash slapstick film about a woman who gets locked in the freezer of the restaurant she works in overnight. Uh, her husband and her kids don't even realize she's missing. This sets her off on a kind of new path in life. She becomes obsessed with all things cold and uh, eventually takes a journey to see an iceberg. So uh, this is a film I've heard actually really great things about and I've been meaning to see for a while. So that is number 13 on my queue. All right. All right. It's your turn, Matt. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Three new films. First up available on Netflix is The Ambassador, Danish filmmaker Mads Brugger's. Uh, he previously made The Red Chapel. He masquerades as a phony African diplomat amongst the real diplomats and power brokers of the Central African Republic. In order to expose the systemic corruption involved in the local diamond mining industry, and it's, it's an insane film. It's totally a, insane. It's an insane film. Very much worth watching. Uh, also available on Netflix is the television series Alias, J.J. Abrams' uh, TV breakthrough, I would say, about a double or is that a triple agent? played by Jennifer Garner, also a breakthrough for her. Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend watching the entire series. About halfway through, it kind of falls apart. But the first, like, two seasons two or seasons, so yeah. <laughs> are fantastic. They have all these great plot twists, all this incredible suspense, and a really unusual structure for an hour-long series where stories sort of they, they end at the beginning of an episode and then kind of cliffhang halfway through. It's really cool, at least the first season or so. So that's Alias on Netflix. And last, available on Netflix starting on October 23rd, is the film Bug, William Friedkin's adaptation of the Tracy Let's Play about a couple who sort of make a love connection over the fact that they're both totally crazy. And uh, you have two amazing lead performances by Ashley Judd and especially Michael Shannon. I don't know if I'm going to watch this movie again because it is super disturbing, but I'm glad I watched it once and I would recommend you do the same.
All right, two expiring titles. Okay, this one is expiring on November 1st. It is The Bellboy, Jerry Lewis's directorial debut, in which he plays, spoiler alert, a bellboy. Uh, I'm not the biggest Jerry Lewis fan, but this one, like most of his movies, they have some amazing physical comedy sequences, and that's what I watch them for. Not so much the kind of Jerry Lewis character, but sort of the inspired physical gags, which I love. So that's The Bellboy, expiring on November 1st. Also expiring on November 1st on Netflix is Bonnie and Clyde, the film that launched the new Hollywood era. If you've never seen it, you absolutely should. It's uh, certainly an important film, but even more than that, it's just a really entertaining one. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway as the titular gangster lovers. Uh, I think it's safe to say movies were never the same after the final scene in Bonnie and Clyde. I I don't think anyone would dispute that. So that's Bonnie and Clyde, available until November 1st. All right, and one from your queue. You gave me number 42, which this week is Tell No One. It's a French thriller. It's supposed to be great. I've seen quite a few of the recent French thrillers. I really loved Sleepless Night. Uh, Point Blank is another very good recent French thriller. So this is kind of one of the first ones that made an impact over here. I just haven't seen it yet, but... uh, at some point, I'll get around to it. Tell no one. And now we come to our listeners' choice picks for the next episode. First pick is Style Wars. This is streaming on Netflix. It is a kind of underground landmark uh, 1983 documentary on hip-hop culture directed by Tony Silver uh, in collaboration with uh, Henry Chalfant. This is a film about graffiti artists in New York. There's also a bit about rapping and breakdancing, but it's really a snapshot of New York in in this period in the 80s. Really a, a, a highly acclaimed documentary that has a following um, and is considered one of the few documentaries about hip-hop culture that really got it right. So uh, that's Style Wars, streaming on Netflix. Okay, our second option is going to be available on VOD starting on October 23rd. I think we mentioned it earlier in the show. It is called The Comedy, directed by Rick Alverson and starring Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim from Tim and Eric, along with James Murphy from LCD Sound System. And uh, from one of the descriptions I found of the movie, it is, quote, not a comedy. It's a critique of a culture based at its core around irony and sarcasm and ultimately how hollow that is. The film premiered at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival, where it was very polarizing. Some folks called it one of the best films at the festival that year, and some folks said it was absolutely horrible. And sometimes when I see that, that makes me more interested to see it, Allison. So that's why we picked this one as another option. That's the comedy, and it will be available on VOD on October 23rd. Our last pick uh, is not a film I've seen. Is it one that you've seen, Matt? No. It is not. Okay, no. so this will be a first for this both of us. This will be a first for both of us. It is Quadrophenia. It is streaming on Hulu Plus, 1979 film based around the 1973 rock opera of the same name by The Who. Uh, it's story of mods and uh, their battle with rockers in part, starring Phil Daniels as a mod who's kind of frustrated with his life and um, looking for... I don't know, connection within the scene of the mods. Uh, Also stars Sting as Ace Face, the leaders of the mods, and is a real, I don't know, cultural landmark, let's say. absolutely, Uh, And is one I would really be looking forward to watching. All right. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 29th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Monday, November 5th. 
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Matt on Twitter at, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And of course, you can follow the show uh, at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. 